Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, September 29th. Today we have an interview with The Science of Hitting, or that's his uh, name that he goes by, right? And, uh, yes. And then we also have Matt Cochran in on that interview. So it's the four of us. We talk big banks, big tech, um, connected TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the discussion was like Wells Fargo and Facebook primarily, right? Yeah, and then Comcast versus Roku. So... We're fans of Roku, as you probably listened to before, but the signs of hitting and Matt know a lot about Comcast, and that's a business we hadn't really talked about before, and it was pretty interesting to hear about that because cable gets a bad rap, and Comcast has been doing okay, I mean, for the last decade here. It's really interesting because you tend to just like exclude them. You tend to Mm -hmm. like not even look at them because you're just like the trends are against them, but then you have a lot of good businesses with a lot of value that people are just writing off early yep. on because they're facing headwinds or whatever. Definitely, so, yep. and um, we talk about that for a while, so it was a great discussion. And then before that, we both have our news stories for the week. What are you talking about? Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about a niche in e-commerce that's big in East Asia. It's called browsing e-commerce, but it has not really grown in the United States or the West, and I think it could over the next few years here, so it could be another thing to watch out for. Um, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then you got yours, right? Yeah, and I've got the Joe Rogan walkout. Um, I'm, I'm sure most people kind of know what it is, but we're going to discuss that as well. And then we have current state of Fintwit, and then on the back half, hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Okay, welcome in. Let's kick things off with your story. So what do you have? Okay, so this wasn't a news story. It's more of a Medium article. Is this guy named Vivek Goal, and I apologize, Vivek, if I'm butchering your name because I don't know what you specifically do. This uh, article just came from someone else, but it was about the browsing e-commerce market. So browsing e-commerce is basically bringing more of the traditional shopping experience online. So the mall used to be a place where people would go, and they would go just to shop. But when people shop online, a lot of the times, at least maybe some people don't do it this way, but a lot of times you think of something you need and then you actually go and look that thing up specifically. Like on Amazon, you search for an item and then they show you a bunch of items related to that, but it's not really browsing. So Pinduoduo has a model that more is browsing e-commerce. It has $180 billion in gross market volume or whatever you call it, you know, the, yeah, the volume GMV. GMV that's flowing through their system and is it based in China? They have nothing at scale in the West yet, which is surprising. Uh, Vivek says that we need more, you know, discovery, fun, personalization, and then social commerce in the West, which I could agree with. At least in e-commerce, it's so stale online right now. Pinduoduo sells itself as kind of a combination of Disney and Costco, so they might be different than something that would work in the United States or in Europe, but. Vivek also lays out potential companies that could build something similar. He says Facebook, who owns Instagram and Facebook, obviously, and then WhatsApp. And then Pinterest could do something interesting with this. Shopify, Stitch Fix, Wish, and Verishop. Haven't really don't know much about Wish or Verishop, but what do you think? Is this an easy way to bypass Amazon or create your own competitive advantage that maybe Amazon can't, you know, even compete with with their size and scale? Yeah, potentially. It, I mean Essentially, what he's talking about is an experience where your intention is to shop for a while. Your, mm-hmm. your intention is to go in there, spend look, some time, look for something to buy, yeah. but then get recommendations fed to you based on your preferences or based on data that say you might like this as well. And 
Amazon, you're really just going there for one thing typically, mm-hmm. or you're like, all right, here's the list of stuff I need to buy. But you're not – you don't want the shopping experience on Amazon. Um, and then on the flip side, the other ones, they're trying to integrate basically these inspiration tools, whether it's Pinterest right. or – Instagram, you're not directly going there to shop. You're going there sort of because you need to fill time in your day or you're Mm -hmm. looking for inspiration, but it's not necessarily to shop. I guess the only place that kind of does this would potentially be Stitch Fix or maybe even like some of the online, like the shopping, the browsing experience might happen for like a Lululemon website or something. So maybe Shopify might power that. I mean, Shopify is more the back end in general, but. Maybe Lululemon or Nike. We always say those names. There's some other big brands that can do it. I feel like the number one combo here would be a combination of Stitch Fix and Instagram. Kind of just merge those 50-50. That would be, I think that would work well, but there's nothing specifically that's doing this or even maybe if they're trying it, it's it's really small right now. Maybe it exists, but it's fragmented. Yeah, like, real fragmented. You're going to Nike's website and you're looking for various different things. You're going to Lulu's and you're basically going to brands and shopping that way, which is kind of like the mall experience. But there mm-hmm. should be or there could be something that ties all that together and feeds you either Nike or Lulu or any different version of your shopping hey, experience. Stitch Fix, they might be able to do that. I don't know how well they're succeeding in that right now, but I think they have – they're on the best – path right wouldn't you say of getting to there they're not there exactly but they're kind of close maybe if they've changed things up we'll see over the next few years Uh, yeah that might not even be their intention but it looks like they might be the earliest to get there Mm -hmm. um my story though joe rogan walkout from spotify because people might not know that he works you know for spotify now so now he is exclusive on spotify is he officially exclusive or is he still Uh, on youtube no it's the start of 2021 so it'll be He'll be exclusive on Spotify in 2021, but right now he's on Spotify and he's actually been since I have a, well, was a Spotify shareholder. I don't know. He's the number one show on there still right now, even though he's on all the other platforms too. Okay. Um, so this came through a Barstool Sports article, so they obviously had their own take, but the source um, was someone else. Apparently there's preliminary plans of a high-profile strike or walkout. Um, and they were shared with Digital Music News, which is basically a news site for the music industry. Um, and there was already prior talks about this because I think it was last week or two weeks ago, there was an all-hands meeting at yeah, Spotify about, a lot of rumors. about censorship um, over Joe Rogan's podcast. And Spotify employees basically want editorial oversight over the Joe Rogan experience, um, which first and foremost, there's gu- there's – and people said this on Twitter. There's got to be a clause in his contract that says you can't do this mm-hmm. or I walk or and he, I get and he gets paid. The, yeah, and he still gets paid. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean my gut feeling here, I'm no lawyer. I don't know any of this stuff you know, front and back. But my gut feeling is there's no legal claims to do this or do what yeah. they're saying. They already took out that Alex Jones content, which made sense. And it seemed like a decent compromise perhaps. Or maybe they all agree like, you know. Alex Jones is kind of a psychopath and he, he tries to spread lies on purpose. Um, he's not like some conspiracy theory guy just smoking weed, which is most of his guests. Yeah. So, I mean, and the, so this was all the New York based Spotify employees, by right. the way. So it is, I mean, when you talk about this is violating the First Amendment kind of thing, it okay. is, it is the American uh, headquarters. So, right. Um, it's and not, they're headquartered in Sweden. So this isn't even going to be a big part of their office, I would think. Do you, feel like this does violate the first amendment in any way no oh you mean like 
I don't know in what way. Like them censoring or um, removing parts of interviews. I don't think. Well, it's a it's a private platform, so no. But I think it would be a bad idea because he could go somewhere else. I, I they could technically do it because it's their own company. They own the platform, just like Facebook could do it. But mm-hmm. I just think it would be a bad idea, and it's not really gonna help anything. I mean, it's not helping any like. They're not even trying to help out. He's not like a politician. He's not a public figure. You know, it's just there. I pe- I think people overrate the importance of him. He's just a uh, really really good talker that asks weird questions and dives down, you know, random rabbit holes with famous people. It's kind of fun. I mean, if you were if you're looking at this as someone that works for Spotify, first of all, I imagine you take some form of stock options. Yeah, you know how valuable he is. You don't have to agree with everything he says. Yeah. I mean, most people don't. And yeah. But at the same time, you can easily see the listener statistics and be like, yeah, this is important that we have him. Why would I shoot myself in the foot mm-hmm. by going out on a strike? And according to the article, the employees also demanded the ability to add trigger warnings, corrections, and references to fact-check articles on topics discussed by Rogan in the course of his multi-hour discussions. Yeah, I mean that's just – that's ways. <laughs> that's just laughable. That's just laughable right there. I mean, I'm not. I'm not even. Not even politically. Like it's just. It's just laughable in general that they think yeah. they can do that. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense to me. People no. aren't listening to this. Like, like, and and I am. I'm defending Joe Rogan, but I'm not a Joe Rogan fan. I, I yeah. don't like his podcast that much. I mean, there's good interviews all the time, but I don't. I don't really enjoy it. I don't take what he says as truth. If people did, every single person would eat bison burgers and go into cryotherapy every morning. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a comedian. Yeah, he's a comedian. He was signed up because he gets listeners. It's like Howard Stern back in the day. Spotify employees should probably listen to uh, what he did, and he was the biggest name in digital – or not digital. I keep saying digital – satellite radio, uh, and it's very, very similar. He said things that people probably wouldn't disagree with. Um, last question though you had written down here Spotify bold thesis if he goes I would say does it worry you at all like if yeah. he I, it would worry me it wouldn't ruin it as a Spotify bold thesis but it would worry me a lot because he was a huge grab for them yeah this is actually one of the most concerning things I've seen come out for mm-hmm. Spotify because here's okay yes he is a huge grab for them it's a giant asset for Spotify drive but, MAUs yeah even if, say, I mean, because Daniel Ek, I don't think, would say, all right, yeah, we're going to take mm-hmm. down his videos and risk losing him. They'd, he'd rather just hire 20 new developers or however many people are at the headquarters. I hope, I yeah, like I hope this stuff is totally overblown because it is something that is clickbaity. So hopefully it just, you know, all the websites are like, you know, we should do something on this because we'll get 100,000 clicks, something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's also concerning because if he feels like he isn't wanted there, I'm sure there's also some way he can opt out. Yeah, true. You know? And so it, it just doesn't sound like it's a very good relationship between him and Spotify as a whole. Yeah, uh, maybe it's overblown. I I bet it's okay. Like, I would hope that the executives or whoever is, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I hope he's just like, hey, you're hearing this in the news, but we're chill kind of deal. And yeah. I'm following this closely. It seems like it wouldn't be a big deal, but I'm following it very closely as a Spotify bull um, that... Yeah, it's it's super important, and I hope they don't botch it. Um, current state of FinTwit, what do you have? Okay, I got three things. First up is something I tweeted uh, that got a lot of discussions, so I thought I'd share with you. And on the show here, I have an idea for Google to return value to their shareholders. Five steps. First one, sell anything that isn't search or map. So this would be Waymo, YouTube, other bets, all the stuff that hemorrhages money. Um, I know YouTube makes money, but 
that would raise upwards of $250 billion, tons of cash, probably more, maybe closer to $400 billion, especially in this market. Uh, then you would fire 80% of the workforce because search, um, I don't even know why they have any employees there. You could get 60% plus free cash flow margins that way. And then you can lever up like Apple does with a bunch of 2040 bonds that yield like 2% because it's just ridiculous what the interest rates you can get right now on those long-term bonds. And then you could buy back 80% of your outstanding shares over the next decade, probably return 10x to shareholders. Who says no here? Uh, probably everyone at Google, yeah. but um, True. it's a nice fantasy to imagine <laughs> as a Google non-shareholder, but probably. it's just not going to happen. I don't see that as any possibility. We also, I think, discussed that on the interview as well. So why don't we shoot to your next one? Okay. Uh, this is from Joe, Joe Weisenthal. Um, there's always those charts around that show stuff getting more expensive and less expensive. Um, and he tweeted that, you know, there's charts out there that a lot of people you know share um they don't even check the sources they actually show that inflation for wage growth is growing virtually faster than every other category so food cars etc um consumer staples televisions electronics are all actually in a deflationary environment and there's actually a really interesting book called the price of tomorrow by Jeff Booth that show, that talks about how a lot of things we do now um, are deflationary, which basically means that you know computers are a lot more powerful and they're cheaper, so it costs less. There's a few things that obviously have cost more: healthcare and education. Does this like? I don't know. It seems like the main thing here is that a lot of things are more expensive. A lot of things are getting inflated away. But when you actually look at the numbers, it doesn't seem that bad, right? Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the last. Maybe I don't notice it, but I don't go to the grocery store and get all the same stuff and go like wow that was way more expensive mm -hmm. ever like it tends to be similar price um but also a lot of this stuff is like goods that are getting more competitive right. so hardware tvs stuff like that i mean it's more and more competitive they're driving down the price that way benefits of capitalism right yeah i'm but think about like finite goods real estate stuff like that that's going to go up maybe um, maybe for sure but yeah, I do think that gets overblown. I think the fear of inflation is huge. Like huge. anytime you're like, well, the Fed printed money and they're like, yeah, well, you know, we're going to have to pay for that or everyone's going to be – everything's going to come back to inflation. And yeah. it's like I haven't noticed. As, as a consumer, <laughs> I haven't noticed Well, and inflation. the thing is I think a lot of people grew up when inflation was a giant problem. So that's kind of how they view the world. Yeah. And the thing is, currently, maybe that's not an issue, but it was when they grew up. So that's kind of how people have set their uh, worldview, especially if you're like over 40. Yeah. All right. All right. Last one. one. This one's a funny one. Okay. So there's a guy. Um, I'll just say his name because he's verified it at VC. His name's Jake Chapman. Uh, he had a very interesting tweet. I want to see your reaction to this one. He said, my Robinhood portfolio is up 300% in the last year. Why am I in early stage venture again? Oh yeah, because I want to help create and shape the future my daughter lives in. What's the cringe rating on I that? Think 10 I out of 10? That. Was that sarcasm? No, he's serious. I think well, he's, he's a VC and he has a Robinhood account? Well, I mean, yeah, he's his personal one, you know? My Robinhood's up 300%. He's bragging that. I he, thought this was, I thought he was making fun of people. I hope he was. I thought he was making fun of people. Maybe I'm I, not. I, is he like the guy VCs congratulating themselves no, retweets? Is that the kind of yeah? I'm, that's the kind of account. I don't, I don't know. He's uh, his his Twitter handle is at VC. So there is the things VCs say. I'm so glad that account was made because some of the stuff 
it's absurd. hard to decipher whether they're joking or not. I mean, yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> what do you cr- think? What's the cringe rating? Ten out of ten. Oh yeah, it's up there because I thought it was. It's one of the worst ever. Okay. Um, current state of FinTwit for me. I know we're trying to talk less about Tesla in general, but once a show, once a show is good. I thought it'd be worth mentioning um, a tweet from this weekend. So Musk mentioned in a tweet that they were having some trouble with logistics. Um, someone asked, "How can we help?" And <laughs> oh, he responded and said, "Totally up to you. But if you head to a Tesla delivery center near you and maybe help out new owners, that would be cool." And make sure to bring a knee pad. Okay, hold on, <laughs> hold on. What? Help him with what? A like I know. get acclimated to the car. You're yeah, just bring a your shareholder. Bring or your semi truck warrior. Yeah. Um, and then. On the other, on the flip side, who spends their weekends volunteering for like the what is he fifth richest person in the world? People in cults do that. That is literally like if I went to a street corner and held up a sign that said, "Use the Cash App as much as you can." Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to do anything. I don't care. You know. Yeah, it's it's another it's cringy. It's cringe. Yeah, it's bad. It's so bad. Um, and it's a cult, and there's nothing else to say. Okay. Second tweet, um, I saw this. I'm forgetting who tweeted it, but um, it was days with 2% drops, and then it did the years and how many days. So in 2004, there was zero. 2005, there was zero. 2006, there was zero. 2008, there was 41. 2009, 28. Wow. This year so far, 24, if I'm getting right. That's up there. Was 2004 through 2007 the easiest time to invest (laughs) ever? apparently i was like eight years old but yeah imagine three years where the market never drops more than two percent that's amazing that's actually amazing i guess i guess it's a bubble but yeah well it wasn't even a bubble specifically in the market because pe ratios weren't even that bad but it was the real estate that kick-started it because everyone was having liquidity issues um it's strange that things were happening that well and it was a great time to be a value investor a lot of the times like deep value guys, value factor investors do well in more volatile times. At least I think um, I could be wrong. Stats might show it's different, but at least I think I read that before. So that's strange. It's kind of a contradictory. Uh, it's not what you think would have been, right? Yeah. It's just strange to think of a year without any 2% drops. Like yeah. that happens, feels like every other day. Memories. <laughs> um, okay. That's going to do it for our first half. We have our interview coming up with TSOH, Science mm-hmm. of Hitting, and Matt Cochran. What were your highlights? Highlight was probably the Facebook discussion. So I have some bearish uh, concerns. I'm never going to short Facebook, but I just have concerns. I don't know if it's going to be that good of an investment over the next few years here. And you guys were, all three of you, I think, disagree, but it was a good discussion. We had some nice debates on the merits of some of the stuff going on there. And I really can't make up my mind on Facebook, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It was just good. I thought the I thought the fascinating part was like the Wells Fargo and the Comcast discussions because you just think they're dying. Mm-hmm. And then the operational okay, Wells Fargo's had some trouble, but the operational sides of the business, whether it's deposits or um operating income for Comcast subscribers tend to do well yeah and people just overlook it and they think fintech or smart TVs are taking over Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight at least if they are taking over it's not going to happen in a day or a year or even a decade yeah there might be a floor too which Mm -hmm. creates a lot of value okay um, hope you enjoy the interview here you go
All right, today we are welcomed by now third time guest, Matt Cochran. Um, he's a lead advisor at Seven Investing, and we're also welcomed by a new guest, Alex at Science of Hitting. If you, I'm sure you know him by his Twitter name, The Science of Hitting. He writes for Guru Focus, and he has The Science of Hitting podcast. Am I getting all that right, Alex? Yep, that's pretty much all of it. Okay, so uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yep. And all right, we're going to start out with Alex. Uh, since we already know Matt, um, if you want to know about his background more, we talked about it on the first episode that we did with him. But Alex, we kind of want to get an introduction. So first off, uh, your strategy on your Twitter handle says you follow a patient strategy followed by pretty aggressive conduct. Can you explain that a little further? Yeah, so I'd say at, at a high level, my portfolio construction is, you know, I run a pretty concentrated book and I essentially book to maybe make a handful of decisions a year. Um, so to give you some numbers, I currently have 23 holdings in my portfolio, but it's pretty top heavy with 40% in the top three and 60% uh, in the top five. Wow. And the bottom, the bottom 10 are only 10%. So they're kind of, you know, I kind of view them more as starter position, something that I just want to track more closely, essentially. Um, right. You know, obviously that design leads to, you know, the results in my portfolio are obviously driven by those three to five companies, which is by design. Um, and I also tend to hold companies for a long time. So the largest positions I have are Microsoft and Berkshire, and I've owned both of them since 2011. So, you know, at a high level, what I'm trying to do is find a handful of companies as well as managers that I want to partner with for the long term. And then I make meaningful bets when I think I get a good chance to do so. Right. That sounds like a pretty sound strategy. It's worked for a lot of people. Uh, and it sounds similar to the Berkshire strategy itself or the Buffett and Munger strategy. I see you tweeting and talking about them a lot. Um, I love seeing the quotes fly along my Twitter timeline. It's always nice to read a good, uh, like a 1988 uh, <laughs> Buffett quote that I know you're reading about. Uh, so you're big fans of them, obviously. What do you think we can learn about them specifically for investing in 2020 and beyond? That's funny. As a little side note, I imagine some people reading my tweets like, what does this guy actually do all day? Like he's sending random Berkshire, <laughs> sending random Berkshire quotes and there's these random charts of Nike and other stuff. Like what his, his mind is obviously very scatterbrained as well, which is accurate. Um, we like it though. So yeah. it's great. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things obviously that I've learned from them over time. And, you know, the quote you mentioned before, patience followed by aggressive conduct, which is something Charlie Munger once said, you know, I think that's a big part of, how I think about investing. And it's just an idea that clicks with me. And you know, I think of another story Munger told once, and he, he said this at uh, USC Business School in 94, when he, he did a talk there, Lessons of Elementary Worldly Wisdom, it's kind of a well-known speech. And he talks about how he ate dinner with the president of Santa Anita, which is a horse track. And he, you know, the guy basically told him that there's only a handful of betters who have actually made money after accounting for the handle, which is you know, the, the tracks cut of what people bet. And he said the one thing that all these people had in common, their secret to success, was that they bet very seldomly. And, you know, obviously they bet on a rare occasion. And when they did, they, they bet pretty big. So he concluded that story with which probably one of my favorite quotes in investing, which is, uh, it's not given to human beings to have such talents that they can just know everything about everything at all times. But it is given to human beings who work hard at it, who look and sift the world for a mispriced bet that they occasionally find one. And I, and I really think that quote captures what I'm personally trying to do and you know I'm sifting through industries and obviously the companies within those industries uh, obviously in industries that I think I can understand and I'm looking as you know businesses change and 
the stories around them change and their prices change. And I'm just trying to find situations where every once in a while I can do something that is, you know, intelligent and obviously hopefully makes me some money. Um, you know, one of the other things I've learned from Buffett and Munger that I think is instructive, I've been going through the, the late 90s and early 2000s shareholder meetings lately. And I, one thing I find interesting about them is how comfortable they were with going through the late 90s. And obviously it was a period of years, so it's easy you know, to kind of think it just kind of flew by, but it was a relatively long period of time where you know, they felt somewhat out of step with what was going on. And in all those meetings, as they're asked similar questions year after year, I never had any sense that they were angry or annoyed or anything like that. They're, they've always seemed very comfortable, even, even being greedy and trying to you know, play catch up to other people who are getting ahead in certain senses. They always seemed very comfortable with what they were doing and they understood what they were good at and they didn't fret about the idea of other people making money doing other things. So I think that's something that's also very instructive and definitely applies to today as well. So. Yeah, I mean, even the best investors, I think Stanley Drunkenmiller said that he you know, resisted the dot-com bubble up until March of 2000. And then even him, one of the best investors, probably of all time, capitulated and started buying those tech stocks right into the uh, huge sell-off. So that's right. pretty hard. Yeah, Alex, do you think yeah. you have um, a niche or a focus in the markets, sort of an industry that you like specifically? You know, there's certain, I, I could start by saying the inverse, which is definitely areas that I do not feel comfortable investing in. Right. Um, you know, stuff like healthcare, a lot of tech for me is just difficult to get my arms around. Granted, part of that's the price. Um, energy, you know, there's certain places where I just don't feel I really have any sense to say what it's going to look like in five or 10 years. And as importantly, who's going to be a winner and why. So there's definitely areas like that for me. You know, some of the areas where I feel kind of comfortable or where I think I understand the competitive dynamics and who has a good shot at being a winner five or 10 years from now would be, you know, retail, specifically grocery and dollar stores, that type of business. And, you know, Ollie's would be something like that. And it's kind of discount retail. It's different than what someone like Amazon is serving in my eyes. Uh, and then another industry would probably be media to a certain extent, but uh, even that one can definitely get a little tricky for me. So I have plenty of blind spots and hope, hopefully I can uh, identify them relatively well. It's gotten me out of trouble for the most part so far. And another uh, area that you've written about before is sort of the TV or the, you've written about Comcast. So we want to talk about CTV. Um, cord cutting has kind of been a big theme over the last decade. And I'm curious how you see incumbents fighting back because a lot of people see it as Comcast and sort of the legacy providers are getting kicked out of the market by the Amazon TVs, the Apple TVs, the Roku. Do you see Comcast being able to push back at all? Yeah, Comcast is an interesting example because of the businesses that they're in. So I'd say you know, in cable communications, which is where they have, you know, they sell their pay TV service along with selling internet services connectivity. They've really pivoted the strategy and focused on connectivity. So selling internet to residential and, you know, business customers. So that's, that business has grown pretty significantly over the last five years during a period where, you know, their video business was basically flat as they lost subscribers, but, uh, you know, higher prices passed through. Um, I think that, as that happens, and we've seen this happen, it leads to higher margins and it leads to lower capital intensity, which leads to you know double digit 
cash flow growth in the segment, essentially. So, and at, at the same time, I think the results they've shown in the last couple quarters clearly indicate that the idea that they need double or triple play, you know, that, that you're selling multiple services to customers, I don't, I don't think that that necessarily needs to be done in order to keep churn low. So that, that idea has kind of gone away. So long story short, I just don't think cord cutting is really a risk for their core cable communications business anymore. Now on NBCU, um, it definitely is a, a more direct issue. With that said, I would say, you know, cable networks and broadcast TV within NBCU did about $6 billion in EBITDA last year. So it counted about, for, about 20% of Comcast's total EBITDA for the year. Uh, and also note that that $6 billion number was about 40% higher than what those two divisions had generated five years earlier. So, you know, they're still trending in the right direction for now, but obviously there's concerns about where they'll be going down the road. Um, you know, I, I think this is leading to some experimentation and some new ideas from Comcast or from NBCU specifically. Most notable example is Peacock, which, you know, they're moving a lot of their marquee properties, whether it's the office or, you know, sports rights like EPL. They're clearly trying to drive usage. At the same time, they're, they're pulling uh, some of those properties from a place like NBC Sports. So as I, you know, as I think about the next couple of years, as entertainment programming continues to shift to SVOD, stuff like Netflix, and now they're taking their marquee sports rights and moving those off of linear TV as well, I just wonder what that's going to do for their ability to uh, negotiate rate increases as they talk to MVPDs. So, and I also don't know how effective the Peacock strategy is going to be. You know, something like Disney Plus is, and I own Disney as well, it, it's much clearer to me why that's going to work. Peacock certainly has certain advantages, but it's less clear to me that they have the programming and really the technical chops as well to, to be a successful product. And they're kind of tied to uh, some of their you know, legacy views on the world, which in, in terms of putting advertising in the product, I just don't think it's a very intelligent idea. Um, I think they're looking backwards a bit. So I, I'm not sold on Peacock. Uh, that said, I think, you know, Comcast can clearly still work well, even if NBCU or those segments, segments within NBCU uh, do not work out very well. But I think in total, the pay TV bundle is still going to exist for a decent amount of time, and there'll be tens of millions of subs. And the only way that could really change is if something dramatic happens with sports rights, which even if that happened, that would still probably take you know five or ten years to really play out. So I think it's a manageable issue, but yeah, there, there's there's problems there. I was going to ask, do you think Peacock and Peacock and Roku just signed a deal like the other week, right? Did that just go through? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Comcast and Peacock. Who, who knows what the deal actually was, but right, right. Do you think that Peacock will ever be like a needle mover for Comcast, or is it basically trivial? Like Comcast could do well regardless of Peacock's success. Yeah, I think it's more the second one. I th I think you know the franchises that they have, which which certainly are not on par with someone like Disney. If Peacock doesn't work out, I think they still have avenues to basically sell, you know, or license their content uh, to a certain degree. But it is it is a difficult thing. I mean, yeah, you're, you have these, you know, negotiations with the Roku's of the world, you know, and, and then you think about, you know, companies like Apple getting more and more involved in a lot of these spaces like video. Um, 
Yeah, I can see Peacock having a bit of an issue in terms of securing distribution, at least at a price that they deem reasonable. Um, I, I, I like my Disney ownership much better in that regard because that's a that's a harder product to just say you're not going to have on your service. So, yeah. We should uh, probably bring Matt back into the discussion here now. Uh, no worries. I'm learning as much as you guys. Yeah. Did you have any <laughs> thoughts on the Comcast at all? Um, uh, like yeah, it's they... honestly it's not a business uh i'm too familiar with a alex how much like of a as a percentage of the revenue how much does nbc generate as opposed to their like uh like the services they provide when you say nbc do you mean specifically the the broadcast network all, all, all of it like uh nbc what peacock will be expected to contribute universal so, like theme parks, all that stuff. Right. I don't know the I don't know the number off the top of my head. I think in terms of profitability, it's about twenty five percent, I wanna say. Okay. Now granted, they've included Sky now too, so that's right. kind of throwing the numbers out of whack a little bit. But I mean that is part of the part of the thing with NBC. You know, it's made I think over the past ten years it's generated about forty billion dollars in EBIT. And you know, they they certainly got a, a good deal in terms of buying an asset from GE at a time that was probably not ideal to sell. So it's, it's been a good deal in that regard in my mind. And they still have the theme park today and the studio business, which are both, you know, they're pretty good assets, but yeah, they're, they're dealing with an issue here in terms of cable and broadcast and what exactly it's going to become. Sure. And then um, I guess this question can go out to both you guys, but who do you see having, and you kind of touched on it, Alex, uh, who do you see having more leverage in sort of these negotiations? The uh, content providers like the Netflixes or the Peacocks of the world or the platforms themselves? Because we've seen these disputes play out a few times now. And by platforms, I'm talking about the Rokus, the Fire TVs, that kind of thing. Matt, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, you know, I kind of think like, I think there's different tiers to all this, right? So like for top quality content, like I, I think this battle goes to like top quality content providers first. So if you're a platform, you just can't afford to be lacking must-see TV on your platform. Because the minute I have to go to like another platform to watch something I want to watch, then your platform becomes like expendable to, to me. So if something beats you to the punch to offer all of it, like I'm dropping, you know, the other platform. Now, that but it really matters how good the content is like because if you're pluto tv you know i don't think you have any leverage because you know the top draws on your platform are like journey to the center of the earth and hellraiser 2 uh but for top <laughs> tier for top tier content you know i think they have the most leverage so if i really want to watch a show and so like in my house mandalorian season two will be you know i mean i have several kids like that's that's must watch tv so you know i'm, I'm gonna get whatever i need to be able to watch that now, eventually, I think we're going to kind of see this settle down, and I think you're going to see a more symbiotic relationship between, like, the platforms like Roku, say, and, and content providers. You know, I think it'll become a, a more established playing field, like we see with the cable bundle today. Um, you know, like, I still have the bundle. I, I haven't cut the cord, and when, when Comcast gets my $60 each month, you know, a disproportionate amount goes to ESPN than, like, mm -hmm. say, the Travel Channel. So I think we're going to see eventually like that kind of breakdown in the over the top platform era um, where certain content providers get sweeter deals than others. And I'm sure that's already happening uh, and deservedly so um, like exactly like how sweet those deals are and exactly like what some content apps belong in is probably what's being worked out right now. 
But like, you know, I think Peacock, like for instance, they probably see themselves as a top tier content app and Roku probably uh, wanted them to see themselves as a Pluto TV afterthought. And right. in reality, Peacock is like probably somewhere in between. But I, I just think these things will eventually work themselves out. We're still in such an early inning, you know, for this kind mm -hmm. of distribution era. Right. And what are the top content ones? Is it just Netflix, HBO, and then Disney Plus? Would those be the big three? Or does anyone else have any power? Maybe Amazon Prime? I, I don't know. Right. Alex, right, what I do know. you think? That's what I would that those are the four that came to me. And yeah. you know, these Pluto TVs and other stuff, it's 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 hard to really know exactly how well they're doing in my eyes. The companies will certainly give you numbers that sound interesting, but I have some doubts of that about that to say the least. Um so yeah, it's hard to say. I think, you know, in a lot of, and, but that's also true, as you said, Matt, this is similar to what we saw, we have seen in pay TV for decades. And there's always been a certain tier of, you know, there's been the Disney's with, you know, broadcast network, obviously, and ESPN that were must have channels. And, you know, you had the, the 21st century Foxes of the world that had Fox news and a broadcast network and other channels that were must have, but then you had the discoveries and the Viacoms that were a little bit different. And obviously those, you know, their positions are, certainly changing as their certain channels are overexposed to stuff like entertainment programming. But even in the pay TV world, we haven't seen too much in terms of blackouts. It's kind of interesting. You've seen more of like what we just saw with Peacock and Roku where it's a day and then they find a way to make it work. So I think, I think the reality is it probably looks more, looks similar to what we've seen in pay TV, which these both parties realize that coming together and finding some way to negotiate a deal is, is the best way to go. And uh, I saw that, so you said the big four there, none of them have advertising from what I know of, of those big four popular ones. And on linear TV, I think an estimate was that there was $150 billion in spend globally. Does that, it seems like there's a giant disconnect and there's gonna be a lot of more dominoes that need to fall. Is a bunch of the advertising gonna go over to the Roku's Amazon Fire TVs? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I would say yes like uh, eventually right uh i, I think uh and i i think you're gonna see social media eat up more advertising too like as far right. as advertising revenue I, I i think yeah i think uh it, it, it'll slowly but surely be leaving the the bundled linear cable yeah i do you, i guess either one of you uh, or alex do you have an answer to that sorry yeah i think the only thing i'd add on that is you know for entertainment programming ads were there because the companies that you know basically ran pay tv they can make that work netflix has blown up that model it's it's a, such a better product there's no question about that so i think that's mm -hmm. basically dead or dying um sports and news are a little more interesting to me because i guess you can make an argument news doesn't need to have ad time but sports needs you know breaks in between innings it needs halftime there's a natural spot for ads so i'm still not entirely clear on what exactly moving you know sports to Amazon Prime or you know Twitch or something like that, or even a Netflix. And Reed Hastings has been very clear about this. Is part of the reason why they really don't have an interest in sports is the the nature of the product. So I think that ad time will most likely, as long as the audiences hold, will you know become more and more valuable. But yeah, I'd say in general you're going to see ad spend obviously move to you know the online platforms and to uh, the Roku's of the world. Do you guys think that? a OTT provider or one of the content providers can successfully launch without being on these new platforms like Roku and Fire TV. And I'll let Mac go first with this one. 
Uh, sure. I, um, like off the top of my head, I'd say maybe HBO Max is interesting uh, just because I, I don't think they have quite as wide appeal as, say, a Disney Plus or Netflix. But for fans of those HBO shows, I think they're very into them. And for people who can afford to spend a little bit more for quality content, uh, they are a top tier content provider. But because of that, viewers are going to seek out like HBO Max's content no matter what. Like if you want to watch, like if they come out with a Game of Thrones spinoff or, or, or whatever they come out with next, and it's a must-see TV, there, there's people that are going to seek that out no matter what. Like it doesn't matter if they're not on Roku or whatever. But I don't think... I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think HBO Max will ever have the subscribers say Netflix does either. So I just think they're maybe not quite as, as wide, but like the fans they do have are, are very into that content and they can usually generally afford to spend a little more. So I think maybe HBO Max would be the only one, but like, I think generally speaking, uh, you know, if you're one of these content apps, you kind of want to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's just off the top of my head. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree that you want to be everywhere. I think it's it's going to be a tough go without distribution on the major platforms, and obviously Roku is the major platform as far as I know. So, you know, it it, it makes your life very difficult. It's almost the equivalent of not being in, you know, Google Play App Store and Apple's iOS App Store. I mean, it's 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 difficult to think how you get by doing that. I as I said before, though, I think both parties come together. Roku realizes that part of keeping their dominant position is ensuring that they have the widest variety of apps that people want to watch. And they're hurting themselves when they do not have apps that people want. So it goes both ways. It feels like someone's getting hit, hit disproportionately, you know, in the here and now. So I think both parties definitely have an incentive to come together and, and make deals. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, we're we're gonna go to our second topic here, and that's big tech. Um, right. It's kind of we're kind of beating a dead horse, but it's always fun to talk about. And we had Matt and I had a decent discussion, I think, uh, where we kind of disagree on whether we should own big tech or not. If you're an individual investor, so Matt, we're gonna start with you. You came across fairly bullish on some of the big tech names on Twitter. Sure. Uh, can you explain maybe why you like them as a whole, or if you just want to talk about some individual names you like within there? Go ahead as well. Um, we can do either or. I say generally speaking, big tech, and when I say that, I'll include Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, and Microsoft. I'm not a terribly uh, like a. I'm, I'm kind of neutral on Apple, and I'm not right. a fan of Netflix, which okay. I don't know. They're not really big tech, but they always get thrown in with Fang. So I just want to clarify, like I'm not including Netflix, but like those companies, they're all they're all growing the top line by robust double digits. Uh, uh, generally speaking, great operating margins, very profitable. And, you know, you can argue the valuations are stretched, but compared to the rest of the market, I actually think they're kind of at least within the ballpark of being reasonable. Um, some of the, yeah, compared to some of the other software. Right. Names for sure. Right. Uh, so, yes, they have huge market caps, but. I think the opportunities ahead of them are bigger and growing. Uh, so I don't think they're done being played out. Um, but we can talk about individual names too. So, but like, I just say that's like a broad overview of what I would say is like what I'm generally attracted to when we talk about big tech. Yeah, I guess. So two of the ones that I'm concerned with would, I mean, I guess I'm not bearish on them, but I guess I have concerns about whether I would ever own them would be Facebook because I do think that, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but I do think the network effects can work both ways and that if Facebook is dying as a service for anyone under age of 40, it'll eventually go away. 
altogether and that Instagram will have some problems like Facebook will eventually if they're using the same algorithms that really kind of make people clash. That could be a concern. I think Libra is going to be a total flop. And I think VR uh, is not as meaningful as people think. But you could also say, well, they're still going to print $15 billion in cash flow every year, whatever the number is, um, if they keep those users up. Yeah. Do you own Facebook, Matt, or no? I do. It's a very large position for me. Go ahead. You start. All right. Uh, Yeah, but I definitely want to hear what you say, too. Um, Like, I would just say, like (laughs) – we, we can talk about their mistakes and missteps mm-hmm. all day. We can talk about the headlines and all the FUD. Um, we can talk about like the, the fines they've paid and I am sure the fines they will be paying well into the future. But at the end of the day, like their, their daily active users and monthly active users, they, they've held steady, uh, you know, where in North America and, and over, everywhere else they're, they're growing. Uh, they have billions of dollars of cash on the balance sheet. Um, so there's plenty of cash to pay off those future fines. Right. And, um, you know, several new media, uh, new social media platforms have like risen and fallen in popularity since fa- Facebook entered the global consciousness. Google Plus, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter. Um, I'm sure there's others, but none have stemmed Facebook's growth or user engagement in any meaningful way. So I'm not trying to suggest Facebook is immune to competition. Uh, but like when people, and I'm not saying you do this, Brett, but like sometimes mm-hmm. people say it's like MySpace where uh, like, you know, um, well, MySpace was very popular and then it went away. But that's like to such grossly underestimate Facebook scale. You know, at its 2008 peak, uh, MySpace had basically 76 million monthly active users, uh, which is about like two and a half percent of Facebook's total monthly active people, you know, and that's like they, they added that many uh, uh, people in their first quarter alone. Um, you know, um, I, I think uh, e-commerce will be, uh, can, can move the needle for them. I, I don't know if it will. Like, I don't know if any of these things will, but I think e-commerce could. I think, uh, probably not Libra, but I think WhatsApp or Messenger as a way to move payments could in some geographies. And I think Oculus, I think we're still early innings now. You know, they just came out with the Quest 2. Uh, you know, it's it's cheaper than the, the previous versions of Oculus. And, uh, you know, it's such early innings there. Like, I don't want to cut out any of those, or I wouldn't count out any of those uh, options as future revenue streams. So I, I guess that's how, like, I'd break down Facebook. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm along as well. So I'll, uh, I'll reiterate all of those points, and I think they're all fair. I think my pushbacks is along. The things that worry me are, you know, to, to your point on, you know, Instagram was obviously an incredibly important deal in hindsight. And if they had not done that deal, it's a little scary to think about where the business would be today. It would still be fine in a lot of ways, obviously, but there'd be concerns. Now, granted, that said, part of Instagram's success was surely due to being part of Facebook. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to separate that, out those two points, but um, I think that's certainly relevant. And obviously, you've seen the rise of TikTok, which is you know, built up a massive user base in a very short period of time. So I think there's some truth to the idea that there could be something that comes along that maybe doesn't replace Facebook, but it might be, you know, something that takes users time. Um, In addition to that, Facebook does have a fantastic balance sheet. My concern is that I don't think they have any clue of what they're actually going to do with that balance sheet. And I'm increasingly of the view that, and have been of this view, granted, they did the, the geo deal in India for, I think it was 6 billion. So that was a meaningful. Billion. I think it was ten or maybe six, but 
so it's, it is a decent yeah. amount of money. Um, that said, I think they will continue to run into regulatory issues if they try to do anything close to their core business, you know, in the United States or in Europe, which, and they also don't really show any willingness to repurchase shares or, you know, they've never talked about a dividend or anything like that, which is fine. They can sit there with a very strong balance sheet. I just think it's somewhat flawed to look at 50 billion and go, okay, when I value this business, I'm adding 50 billion in that cash. I think it's going to sit there for five, 10 years, you know, some large number, and it's just never going to get utilized. Um, and in Mark Zuckerberg's defense, he has plenty to worry about, worry about besides how to spend that $50 billion. He needs to keep right. the boys happy. He's dealing with a bunch of issues in Washington. He's worried about competitors, et cetera. So I, I don't, I don't fault him too much actually for what I view as pretty inadequate capital allocation and he's built a fantastic business, but I, I just don't know what they're going to do there. And, you know, to Matt's point, maybe, maybe some of these other things with his ARVR, e-commerce, et cetera, maybe one of those becomes a huge business and maybe you're getting the optionality for a reasonable price or free, depending how you value the, you know, the, the main platforms. But yeah, it seems like, I, it's, Oh, go ahead. I was, for me, it's a, it's a business I enjoy owning at the right price, but it's also something that I, there's a price where I'd personally sell. Right. Right. Um, one last question on Facebook and maybe Ryan has one too. Are you guys concerned at all that they probably are going to be blocked from making any more acquisitions? I think that's definitely the biggest risk like yeah. with Facebook, like not just acquisitions, but just like the regulatory overhang. Right. I, I think like if uh, I was reading a book by Walter Isaacson, Isaacson, uh, the innovators, which is basically like the history of computers. And like in the 1950s and 60s, the Bell Labs, just how much they dominated like technology and the stuff they were producing and they couldn't use so much of it because they were already like under the, micros under the microscope for uh, mon monopoly worries. And I, I think you have the same worries here with Facebook. Like even if they have uh, great tech that they could introduce, they might not be allowed to use it. And yes, acquisitions, that definitely falls under that. Um, I think that's why you'll, you'll see more stuff like them investing in geo like they did in India. Um, I, I think that might be where their greatest opportunities are. But yeah, that's definitely what, to me, 100% is, is the primary concern. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. It has to be outside of the scope of uh, American and European regulators for them to do anything of size in my opinion and really anything that is close to their core business they could i think there's almost no chance they get even a billion dollar instagram type deal done today and you know as ben thompson has, has written about and he's who i go to to make sure i have any clue what i'm talking right. about i don't think they should be allowed to do that deal again as, as a shareholder i don't think that's that's right in a lot of ways um so something else great i'm saying that from today not when the deal happened right right something else that and i don't want to leave Brad, I don't want to leave you feeling isolated on the. Uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Is like for investors, a lot of us are concerned about the moral sort of hazards behind Facebook, but I'm, I'm kind of convinced that the users don't care. Like I, I feel like the investors think about it a lot more than the users do because, for like it's been a concern for three, four years, and users continue to climb. So I'm curious if like our worrying about the moral part doesn't really matter in the long run. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, no, yeah. I mean, the user data speaks for itself. People, 
no matter what they say in polls, which I know is, this is a big deal. I don't know how long ago that was now, maybe two years ago, people said they were going to boycott the service. And as, as Matt noted, the numbers have been basically as strong as they've ever been. Um, personally, I, I think management gets uh, the short end of the stick on this in a big way. I think they've been very transparent about the issues they're dealing with. They are doing the best job they can. Um, you know, margins in this business went from, I think they peaked at 50%. They've guided to 35. A large percentage of that is paying for safety and security in the platform. And those are not small numbers. Those are billions of dollars a year. Right. Um, so, you know, they're putting their money where their mouth is. And, you know, going back to Ben Thompson today, he wrote about Facebook and this article that came out and said, you know, basically Zuck seems very thoughtful and far more aware about the big picture than his employees. And I'd add to that. Uh, the politicians and people in the media as well. I, I, I don't 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 think they get a fair uh, a shake a lot of times. And I can understand from people in the media because they are certainly biased in their own ways about what Facebook has or the internet generally has done to their business. So, but I, I don't have any any qualms with Facebook as a you know morally. Yeah. As far as like the value prop for advertisers, it, there was like a global ad boycott and the bottom line didn't flinch at all. So it's like, you have to come back to Facebook eventually. And like, people are just the, the inkling to advertise there. Like they're, they're so good at what they do. It's hard not to be on that platform. But, um, uh, or Matt, do you have something to say about that? I would just say like, like, so personally I shut off my Facebook account like in 2012 and I've never regretted that decision. Uh, but like one, yeah, I mean, you know, you can tell people not to smoke, but, but they will, or right. you can tell people not to eat cake and drink soda, but they will, you know? So as far as like people, I, I don't think a lot of people do, you know, a lot of people just don't care. And I would also say, man, they have made a lot of mistakes, but I do, I agree with Alex. Like I, I think, uh, I think Zuck is, is doing, he's trying to do a good job. I mean, this kind of unprecedented problem to have the scale, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in alphabet too. Like, I mean, the, the scale has, it's just enormous. It's so hard to grasp around. I think they're both doing a decent job of at least trying, and I don't think they get a fair shake of that. And I think they would do a better job than like if like government came in or somebody else came in. I think they have a better handle on it and are doing a good job. Now, you, you can argue a lot of things like should they have that power or um, – or should it be distributed over multiple companies, you know, not just one company, something like that. But the people are there. I don't know how you get that genie back in the bottle, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, th I think like a lot of times the positives for Facebook are, are ignored too. And there's a lot of negatives. So I don't want to just like brush them over, but like for, to your point, uh, Ryan, like, I mean, small businesses, like you, this is where you go. This is how you get your word out there. You know, for us, like at seven investing, social media is where it's at and a lot of that is is facebook you know like this is uh this allows us to compete with like you know bigger companies with deeper pockets you know that targeted advertising so it's like it can be a real boon to small businesses you know and um like and like today i think somebody proposed like to ban political advertisements on the platforms and i don't know if that's a good idea or bad idea it's above my pay grade but i would just say like there's a point to be made that like that it might be a bad idea just because like this is a way for like 
smaller grassroots candidates to compete with people with deeper pockets. And if you get a, if you get rid of advertising on social media, you might just be left with a bunch of rich people running against each other um, because they're the only ones who can compete. I, I just think there's, there's a lot of nuance to these issues that I don't think get quite like a, but there's not nuanced debate about it, I guess. And I don't know. I'm not saying I have the answers. I don't. I don't. But I just think there's another, there's, a, there's another side to it, at least, is what I would say. There's definitely a lot of good that's overshadowed by the big macro problems with the platform. Um, we should. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Or Even like me too, me too and other social issues. I mean, that stuff was, it, it most likely wouldn't happen without these platforms. It gives people a voice in a certain way. And it also gives people the ability to network and meet like the four of us had. I mean, mm. it's, I, it, to Matt's point, it, it gets way, there's no mention of the positives that come out of this or very little mention of the positives that come out of this. And a lot of the complaints about it from the political perspective are against what the other side is doing or saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of missing a lot of the point. And, you know, there's no nuance in the, you know, for example, if, if the president tweets something that is factually inaccurate, I would personally argue that it should stay up on these platforms because it provides insight into the thought process of the person that you potentially are voting for or not voting for. I mean, it's an important data point. It's an important piece of information. So point being that none of this is black or white. They've solved the really easy stuff like dealing with uh, terrible content, which they largely deal with now through AI. Um, some of the other stuff that's harder to deal with, they've proposed the idea of basically having a third party be responsible for the decision making, which maybe is a cop out in some sort of way that I don't see, but it seems pretty clear to me that they want to address the issue while not shutting down the platform completely, which I think is pretty reasonable. Well, well, actually, I wanted to ask one question. I know you guys both know a lot about Google. Matt, I know, I think you own the company. Um, My thought is, is that they need to just crank up the buyback machine and stop doing the other bets is or wasting maybe $15 billion like they have on other bets and that it would be way more helpful for the stock and the shareholders if they just, I mean, the Google search must have 50%, 60% operating margins at this point. Um, is there a reason they shouldn't do that? Or do you guys agree that they should do a lot more stock buybacks in the future? I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. Yeah. I, I would not be opposed to it. I'll, if you give me one second, let me, like this is a quote from Ruth Perret, um, their CFO, like a, when she was asked a question at a recent analyst conference about the company's spending priorities. And, and this is what she said. The most important, uh, most important is continuing to invest for long-term growth. The second priority is we are very focused on how we optimize within every product area. How do we stack, rank, and look at opportunities to free up capital to then be in part contributing to these longer-term growth opportunities. And third is to invest in what I call operational excellence. It's everything around trust and safety, security, privacy, really ensuring that we deliver on our mission. Yeah. Like, do I think like, to your point, like I, I, I wouldn't mind another bullet point saying, and then we'll, we'll buy back shares. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, that being said, you know, there's something to be said, like this is in the company's DNA, right? And mm-hmm. uh, do you, do you lose something whether do, do you lose a part of that like if, if you give that up and become like a very efficient uh buyback machine you know maybe uh, i wouldn't be i would not be opposed as a shareholder i would not be opposed to them buying back some shares here 
I, I think they very, very near, you know, very little nibbled on those edges. I, I would love to see something like bigger, but at the same time, like, so I think it's part of the company's DNA to always be looking for these growth opportunities. And could some of them work out? I, I would like to be, say, be op, say optimistic, cautiously optimistic that some of them might. All right, Alex, do you have any thoughts on that before we move on to financials? No, I think that's spot on. I mean, it's, you can clearly see the merit in doing it, but it's the nature of the people who are running these businesses. And as I said with Zuck, I don't, you know, you know what you're getting when you get in. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I, I, you know, I think about Bill Gates saying earlier in the day, he wanted to have a year of uh, cash to cover operating expenses if revenue were, revenues were zero, basically, at Microsoft. And, you know, I don't know how long ago that was, but their balance sheet looks pretty similar today. (laughs) So, you know, with a lot of these companies, whatever your definition of optimized is, there's a pretty decent shot. You're never going to get there. So you have to decide whether or not you want to own the business given that reality. That's a good point. You know, like imagine if Nadella had come into Microsoft and said like, uh, we're going to buy back shares. We have all this cash on our balance sheet, you know, we're going to like stop investing in these cloud opportunities. You know, you know, would a shareholders been better off? You know, no, of course not. So, but that being said, like, there's a part of me that would love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, let's think of balance, too. <laughs> We'd like right, a little more right. balance, please. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for it's sure. All, it's, also like a, it's like a slugging percentage thing versus batting average, too. Like, you don't know it's paying dividends until out of nowhere you have a massive – you have a Microsoft Azure. Or, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, right. um, but we should, we should shift to banks and financials now. Um, Brett, do you have the first question here? Yeah, this is for Alex, uh, but Matt, you can chime in as well. What draws you to Wells Fargo? I know, I don't know if you own it, but uh, I know you talk about it a lot right now. You know, they've had all those troubles. Um, I know the CEO was in trouble. They've had another news thing, but the last three years, it's basically, they've been in the news. It's almost probably the second most negative company in the news besides Facebook. And that means they trade at a very low valuation. I think they're priced a book, uh, which is very important for banks. That's probably the only metric I know that's important to banks because it's not anywhere near my circle of confidence. It's right now it's at 0.6. So what draws you to that? And do you have any interest in the company? Let me just start by saying if it's two, do you say the most hated or the worst news stories? I own, I own both of those two, so that's good. I got to find out which other, which other ones are in the top five. I got to start buying those, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I own Wells and I also own BAC. Uh, you know, the main thing that draws me to both of them is their sizable and sticky consumer deposit base. Um, that, that's really the the heart of the matter. And you know, at Wells, as you alluded to, they've had they've had plenty of issues, and it's been very pl- public the issues they've had. Despite this, community to pay, banking deposits at the end in the, in the second quarter were about eight hundred and forty nine billion dollars, which is about twenty five percent from five years ago. So they continue to grow deposits despite obviously very public issues and very serious issues. It's not like they were a joke. They, they messed up badly. Um, so as I think about the industry, I continue to believe consumers are going to favor relationships with these large established banks, you know, the Wells Fargo, the JPMs, the Bank of America, the world. Um, and the reason why I think that's the case is they, they have established brands. They have, you know, a full suite of services, you know, basically they're omni-channel. They have best-in-class, you know, digital properties. They have branches. They have ATMs. And everything like that. Um, and, I, and I do think people sometimes, you know, they talk about the idea of, oh, can't, you know, an upstart potentially take the deposits. I think people underappreciate how valuable it is to have hundreds of billions of dollars that year, you know, the second quarter, Wells Fargo's the deposit cost was 15 to 20 basis points, somewhere in that range. So just to give an example, 
Wells Fargo has about 5,000 branches and they pay about $3 billion a year in, in net occupancy costs. So on the 1.4 trillion they have in, in total average deposits, not just the consumer bank, that's about 20 basis points of cost. So said differently, if you want to start a bank tomorrow and you weren't going to have any branches, you're just going to have an app. So you could eliminate all those costs or just the cost of the branches. Um, and you somehow immediately gathered 1.4 trillion in assets you could give your customers that extra 20 basis points, the cost advantage you have over me. So my question would be, you know, how, many, how much of the deposit base do you think would leave if, he, if they offered those people an extra 20 basis points to go to bankxyz.com? Um, you know, for, the, for the company's primary consumer checking customers, you're talking about an increase in interest income of about 70 bucks a year. So you know, not that important. And obviously, as I, as I said a second ago, you're assuming this, this bank gets the 1.4 trillion in deposits without having any branches, without having any legacy, et cetera. So my point is just that I think people have talked for a long time about someone potentially competing with the big banks and you know, removing the advantage they have, at least in terms of deposits. Now they have other issues, but in terms of deposits, it's still held strong. And I think the reality is that, you know, these banks will continue to grow stronger over time. And just as a data point, you know, in the mid 2000s, the, the three leading consumer banks had about a 20% share of retail deposits in the United States. Today, Wells, JPM and Bank of America have about a 33% share of U.S. retail deposits. So obviously there was, there was M&A activity in the financial crisis that, you know, distorts those numbers a little bit. But they've continued to increase their share of deposits. And I, and I think the reasons why that has happened over the past you know, five, 10, 20 years will continue to be true going forward. So that's really what draws me to these businesses and why I think the franchise is sustainable. Plus that dividend yield, right? <laughs> well, yeah, as long as if they don't keep cutting it, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Al Alex, let me ask you a question though. So like why, I agree with you about big things. Like I, I don't think they're, uh, if they are gonna be casualties of FinTech, I don't think it'll be right away. Mm -hmm. Like, I think some smaller banks might, but like, why Wells Fargo over Banks of America or, or JP Morgan? Like, to me, it, it just seems like the quality of those two, and I, I get the valuation maybe a little, but like, I just feel like you have so much less concern with those two than, say, Wells Fargo. So, yeah, my, my answer is basically, I, I think you're right, and I, I own both of them now, and I own, I own Bank of America in size, too. For a long time, I just owned Wells. Um, Part of the answer was the valuation difference you're alluding to. Wells Fargo's cost structure was much more out of line. And there was also some sense that it was an easier to understand a more uh, plain vanilla bank, as opposed to having a lot of other stuff, whether it was trading, investment banking, et cetera. So that was part of the idea. But yeah, I, there's a lot of truth. And you know, I, I do wonder about, you know, obviously Berkshire sold all of their wells at this point. There is some truth to the idea that while deposits are very sticky, I also think Wells Fargo hurting their reputation could have uh, long-term effects in terms of attracting, attracting new customers. It's hard to steal deposits, basically. So once you impair your reputation to a certain extent, that could be a real issue for a long period of time. So kind of to your point, you may look at that valuation differential and go, well, you know, it's a turn cheaper, two turns cheaper, three turns cheaper, whatever the number is. But if their deposits and loans and profitability is going to grow at a lower rate for a long period of time, at some point, it's, it's worth paying up for a, a higher quality bank. So basically, I think you're, I think you're somewhat right. So I own both at this point. Um, so yeah.
Alex, do you think the, and this is sort of the question we just had around Facebook, do you think the customers care as much about the concerns as the investors do with Wells Fargo? Not particularly. I mean, you know, banks obviously had a, uh, a period in the late 2000s where they were very much uh, not liked. And that mm -hmm. goes for consumers as well as politicians. And, you know, I think you've seen the shift now to the big tech companies that we were talking about and the influence they have on the world. And obviously the dominance they have in so many markets. So I think consumers attention and regulators attention has kind of naturally shifted there. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that Wells Fargo's issues will have no lasting impact, but I think in general, I mean, you can look at their deposit base. It's, it's held up relatively well. And I think most people, when they think about it, realize that, yeah, it's, it's a pretty similar product, whether or not I'm banking at Wells or JPM or Bank of America. I probably agree with that, Alex. But, like, you know what's funny? Like, uh, just real quick, like, the other day when uh, Charlie Schaff made, made his comments and, like, they were in the news again trending, I was just like, man, I feel so bad for Wells Fargo shareholders. I know what they're going through because I own Facebook. It's just like <laughs> for so long, it was like two or three years, Facebook could just not get out of its own way. You know, like it was always like right. another headline. And I was like, wow, like I'm so glad I don't, you know, so, so yeah. glad I'm not a one. And then you own both. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a really good example in terms of, and I, I'm not going to say he said the right thing perfectly. He may have worded it incorrectly. I, I think if you go read the story, the intention of what he said is pretty clear. And as someone who was in the meeting essentially said, he's a forthright guy and he was being honest about the situation as he sees it. Now, people have rightly said they need to do a better job addressing the issue at hand. But at a higher level, to your point, it's a company where it's relatively easy to pick. If you're writing articles about the business world, it's a company that's pretty easy to pick on in a lot of ways and maybe it gets clicks, clicks to a certain extent like a Facebook article would. So, True. you know, that's part of life, I guess. And hopefully they get a fair shake over the long haul and, and, and they certainly made mistakes. And maybe they deserve it. Matt, do you think there's any way that some of these newcomers like uh, PayPal or Square could cut into that or carve into that moat that some of the big banks have created? Oh, for, uh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I don't, I think you already knew how I'd answer that, but like, right. yeah, I think, I, I think, I think it was in my interview with you guys, like last year, I don't, I don't know which time, but we were talking about square and I said, you know, uh, and I think you guys said it too, I, I, but like, we were talking about like, we wouldn't be surprised if they introduced buying stocks on the cash app. And then it was right. like a month later they did, you know, I mean, I, I, I these guys, the, the FinTech players are, are going to be, they're just innovating at a faster pace than the banks. Now, I think the big banks, they have enough firepower to invest a lot in tech and to like kind of like keep, keep them at, mo you know, at bay for the most part. I think the smaller banks that do not have that firepower are in bigger trouble. And I know there's platforms coming on that are offering these services to banks. I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with like just as an example, Square's Cash App. I, I personally don't, you know, cash app just, uh, you know, and, and others too, others too. Uh, but like they just innovate at, at a much faster rate. So I think there's like, uh, I, I think a lot of banks will be hurt. I, I think the big banks, as far as banks go, are, are, are relatively safe, at least for the most part. I think you'll see them maybe hurt all around the margins.
but they have time in the in the resources necessary to invest enough uh, in their own systems and to like copy these guys, albeit at a much slower pace in like a year or two after whatever. But like um, the smaller banks, like I, the regional banks, uh, I think are in trouble. What do you think is the best way to, for these smaller newcomers like a Square or a Cash App, what do you think is the best way to be able to pull those consumer dollars away from the big banks? Like, is it just a bunch of different functionality like the Cash App has, or is there something that draws the appeal, like a higher interest savings account? I think as they introduce more services, you're going to gain more people. And I think to an extent, they will grow with their user base, right? So like right now, their user bases who use them as their banks are, are relatively younger people. I think as those people mature and grow older, their incomes will grow. And I, I think you'll see them kind of grow naturally just from that. I, and as they introduce more and more services, like uh, Demos coming out with a credit card soon, just things like that will, will bring in a little bit more people and keep the people they have using that, using that account more. And I think it'll just kind of like create a flywheel. And there, there, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think there's one silver bullet where all of a sudden you, you get all these more uh, billions of dollars, you know, and, and, and millions of users. But I, I just think like, as their network effects grow, I think as they become more accepted universally, which we're, we're seeing that now, uh, I, I just think it's gonna be a slow and steady onslaught Alex, as they thoughts? grow. No, I think a lot of that's fair. And I think these companies can, you know, obviously something like the Cash App is a very, a very well-built well product. And I think it gets usage for kind of what it's made for. One thing I do think about some of these, and this might, might not be specifically about Square, but, or any of those companies, but I do think, you know, big tech and tech companies in general, I think a lot of them run into an issue where they do something incredibly well. And as time goes by, they try to find more things to do. I guess the, the, the you know, the, the kind of historical example of this is people show the Yahoo page towards, you know, went ahead kind of, hit the end of its run and the page is just loaded with links to sports scores and a ton of other things. You know, I, I think that's a decent example of these tech companies. They can become very sprawling in terms of what they do. And it's very important one for them to continue doing things very well, but also I think in some ways consumers in their mind compartmentalize what brands are and what companies need to them and what they do for them. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of people are trying to make their life as easy as possible. <laughs> and they're not particularly concerned about what the objectives of the companies that they're dealing with. So that's not to say nobody can make inroads in different areas. It's just to say that, um, you know, it's sometimes it might not be as easy as it's, I think about someone like Facebook or Google offering reviews, you know, for restaurants and things like that. They've, Google's certainly done better lately, but Facebook really never gained any traction with that. And I think part of the reason why is nobody cared to think of them as that. Yelp already had Mindshare to a certain extent and they didn't need another provider in a certain way. So I, I think that'll play into some of these things. But that said, Cash App is doing a very good job right now meeting a need. So is Venmo. They're, they're doing something that the bank should have been doing and you know, are doing today, probably not as well as Venmo and certainly not with anywhere near as much usage as Venmo but they created a product that meets a need and ties directly into people's bank accounts. So I think that's a kind of way, it's the same idea you, you deal with the companies that have 
become integrated with the visas of the world. And a lot of times I think they've found the smarter strategy for us is to essentially work alongside these guys. Replacing them is a very daunting task and maybe not plausible. So we can, we can build a business around what they do or alongside what they do. So obviously we'll see what happens over time, but I, I think a lot of that might be what ultimately happens. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think there's oh, a, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say that I've tried to leave Bank of America and I've always <laughs> came back. So maybe that's a good sign. <laughs> I do think there's a future like that plays out that way. Uh, like where banks, but I think in that future, like banks are, almost just all commoditized and they're the dumb pipes behind the, the snazzy interfaces that uh, like cash app offers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think that future is kind to banks either though, but like, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Like we're banks. I mean, to just- a certain extent, to a certain extent, isn't that what they are now or have, I mean, how do, how does the average consumer view the Wells Fargo on the corner relative to the bank of America down the street? You know what I mean? Pretty commoditized. It's a, it's a product that doesn't cost anything in air quotes and they make a small margin on, you know, paying people a, a tiny percentage of interest. I'm just, and my point being that I don't think these are viewed as businesses that people uh, hold in especially uh, favorable light. They're, they're already kind of viewed to a certain extent as just that place where I keep my money and it's, it's not doing much for me. <laughs> yeah, I just think like as these 22 year olds, uh, they get older and then soon like they can get their direct deposit right to their cash app and they already have a debit card for it and they can buy right right from there, they can buy Bitcoin or they can invest mm-hmm. in stocks. I, I mean, I just think that is a, a value proposition that it, it doesn't, the banks have a long, I mean, I kind of see the banks almost as Oracle. Like they, like I, I kind of see, Oracle, they're, they're going to die this incredibly, incredibly slow death over decades. Um, <laughs> but like, I just don't think they're the future. But I think the people on Oracle are just there. Like, you know, it's hard to get off Oracle. And I kind of see that with the banks. Like, as these 22-year-olds get older and they get their first job and their, direct, their check is direct deposited right into their cash app, uh, which just as an example, uh, like, they're not leaving that cash app. You know, just same way you wouldn't leave Wells Fargo. And and, and that's where there already are. And I think as, you know, eventually people get older, you know, and, and as they age and then they retire, so then they don't have direct deposits. And, I, and that's, I think it's just going to be a very slow transition, but I, I think it's going to be fairly steady though. Like, I, I think, I, I don't like the future for banks. I, I think they'd be even more commoditized, I guess is what I'm saying okay. than they are now. All right, That'd be interesting. We'll, maybe we can pull the data somewhere. I can look and see if I can find it. If, if they have demographics in terms of uh, people with checking accounts and, and usage of those checking accounts, I'll look and see if I can find that data and I'll share it with everybody here if I can. It'd be sure. interesting to see. I mean, we like we're prime examples. You basically, whatever bank your parents have, you grab it and then you just keep it there. That doesn't mean most of your deposits will go there, but you're like, I'm probably always going to have a checking account with the BECU or whatever bank you use. And it like, I, you just don't think about switching. You just, wherever most of your money is, you can put it somewhere else. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I think I might be more on that side, but it's, it's tough. And I think that if, you know, obviously something like square PayPal, it's priced for growth like that. And I think it is pretty inevitable that they will continue growing and having, um, you know, if the consumer starts with them at age 22, like us, 
They're going to continue being with them for the next 10, 20 years. But the banks are priced at a, you know, there could be a nice value proposition there as well because they're trading at such a big discount. Well, maybe not JP Morgan, but someone like Wells Fargo. So you don't have to tell me the dollars because I was 22. So I had about $75 in my checking account. But, so, <laughs> but how, much, how much do you guys roughly keep in percentage terms between your traditional bank account versus a, a cash app or something like that? Uh, cash app? Yeah, sp some spending money because I do like the cash card. And I think that's the big proposition for something specifically like Square, where they give you those boosts that are basically a marketing tool where I get like 10% off DoorDash or groceries or things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But the majority is in the actual bank account at Bank of America. And it's also really easy to move it into the cash app if you find like mm -hmm. one of those right. deals that you really right. want to use. Like if you're really want Chipotle and they have their 10% off or whatever. It's not yeah. That hard to move money. Yeah. Cause they have instant, uh, yeah, the upload or not uploading, depositing money into the cash app is, uh, right you can away. do it instantly, but depositing back to your bank account takes one day. And just anecdotally, I think a lot of people, they basically do that same thing where most of their money is stored within the bank, but they use the cash app or Venmo very frequently. No, that's a good point. And to, to what you said, Matt, you know, you can, you can buy stock or Bitcoin. Obviously, you can buy stock on Wells Fargo's platform as well. And they also have similar offerings where you can get discounts. But to the point that all three of you guys are making, obviously, the consumer, the way it's presented to a consumer is much cleaner and much easier to use. So the big banks need to obviously address issues like this over the long term. They can't have, they're spending so much money on tech anyways. There's no reason they should have, but they need to have best-in-class consumer-facing platforms. And I think they will, I, again, I, I think the big banks will. Like, I, I don't think the big banks are, you might see them hurt around the margins, but I, I think it's the smaller banks is where I would, uh, I, I think you're going to, they're going to see, a, I think they're going to, I think they're going to feel it the most, like in the next few years, like as uh, the, the technology gap grows. It's just how I kind of, I think the big banks, they have the war chest to like, just throw a lot of money, you know, at, at like whatever, whatever they need to, 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 to kind of fix the problem. And uh, I think they will. And as crazy it is, as it is, like people our age care so much about user interface and, or, or I mean, or else Robinhood wouldn't exist. Right. That's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yep. Um, okay. Wrap up questions, Matt, we've asked these to you before we asked these to all our interviewees. So Matt, if you have one, feel free to answer. No, go go with Alex. I want to hear his answers too. And so yeah. just, just go with Alex. Okay, right, Alex, perfect. what is one financial saying that you disagree with? So I'm going to pick one that I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I certainly struggle with this idea. And it's uh, it's something that the team at Ocri Capital Management, Chuck Ocri's firm, they wrote last year in an article called The Art of Not Selling. And what they said is, to the surprise of many, neither valuation nor price targets play a role in our sell decisions. And, you know, it's, it's a way of thinking that I certainly can appreciate. I'm someone who tends to, as I said earlier, I concentrate in a long-term investor. So I understand this idea of not, you know, being so pinpoint accurate price targets. Um, at the same time, I think the argument that the truly great businesses are generally or almost always undervalued is different than saying that they are always undervalued. So I, I struggle with this idea of completely disregarding valuation price when you consider a business to be uh, great. And obviously in some ways what I'm really saying is greatness is very difficult to define 10, 20 years into the future. So when you pay a certain price, you're 
implicitly saying that you think something's going to be great for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And I just think that's a very difficult game to play. So I am, uh, you know, it's, it's the hashtag never sell, which is my buddy Jerry Cap on Twitter. Um, right, right. I, I, I'm not sold on the never sell, but I do like to toy with the idea and give them a lot of crap for it. So, <laughs> And I think uh, an example of that would be, and they may have been in a difficult situation because they had so much capital within that business, is uh, Berkshire with Coca-Cola in the late 90s, right? Where yep. they probably identified that when it was trading, I think, at an earnings ratio above 80 for a good few years there. That you know, Buffett and the other guys were probably thinking like, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't buy this here, but if you have that idea of being in the never sell category, it can really hurt your returns if you just hold that asset for the next ten years. Which hindsight's twenty twenty with that one, but I do think there are certain situations where that can occur. Uh, last question: What's one piece of advice you would have for anyone considering a career in investing or finance? Oh gosh, well, there's a lot there. Um, you know. It, I think I'd probably just say at this point, uh, I'd recommend getting your voice out there and building a network somewhere like Twitter. I mean, it's such a great place to meet people who think like you, people who can, you know, question your ideas and make you think, and just a great place to get started. And I would say, you know, write articles or, you know, post tweet storms, do whatever it is that you, you can do to get out there and, you know, take the time and effort to do good work and then, and then reach out to people like us and talk with us. And if you, you know, I've, I've never had an experience on Twitter where if I reached out to someone with a, you know, honest, well thought out question that they wouldn't at least consider giving me the time. And I, and I think that'll continue to be true. So just do good work and reach out to people and start building a network. Yeah. I like that. I mean, that's how we get most of our interviews. So that's, yeah, that's how this happened today. So, right. That's how you do it. All right. Well, that is going to do it. Alex, Matt, thank you for both joining us. I had a blast. Yeah. Nice to meet you. I had a great time. Yep. Likewise. All right. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Alex, the science of hitting and Matt mm -hmm. Cochran. Enjoyed the interview. Had a lot of fun. Now we've got hot water. Um, how many do you have? I have three. Yeah. Uh, average week for me. You want to go first or who went first last week? That I'll should... go first because I think you might have some of mine. I'm guessing. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead then. Okay. So the Whole Foods CEO was interviewed by the New York Times yeah. and he was quoted saying, the whole world is getting fat. It's just that Americans are at the leading edge of that. He also linked it to our, our linked our obesity rate to COVID deaths. Um, there was actually some merit in the interview. What did you think of the interview as a whole? I mean, so I know he, you read it, right? Yeah, he. I mean, he's not lying, but he's also, you know, he's maybe a little too frank for a billionaire. Um, I don't think it, it's probably not the right thing to do. Um, it's probably not good to scold people. You got to kind of teach them how to do the right thing. And also, he says that it isn't hard to find a cheaper, healthy foods, but you're not finding it at Whole Foods, that's for damn sure. You can find it at other places like Kroger's or uh, Walmart's. Yeah, I mean, it's if you're going to be like, eating healthy is just as cheap as eating poorly. Just don't shop at Whole Foods. Like, maybe lower your prices? I yeah. mean, you can get all that stuff for half the price at Safeway. That's why I'm optimistic about Sprouts Farmer's Market. Um, yeah, just because they're like Whole Foods, but cheaper. Okay. So. Um, second one here, Robin Hood again is in hot water. They always uh, are. Yeah, you took this. 
So according to a New York Times article in the first quarter, Robinhood users bought and sold 88 <laughs> times as many risky options contracts as yeah. Schwab customers. Granted, Schwab has much more stringent uh, rules so mm-hmm. that you can trade options. And it was, what, $26,000 traded in, yeah. in contract tra- contracts traded per dollar in your account, right? Yeah. So apparently there were 25,840 options contracts traded for every dollar oh. in the average customer's account. That's roughly oh 12 times more than any other brokerage. It's absurd. Is this the perfect time to sell ridiculous out-of-the-money call options? It actually might be. Also, I found that on Robinhood, there's so many things that get terribly mispriced. Like if you look in there, sometimes things are selling for like a cent when anything around it, even lower or higher, is selling for like 20 cents, which in you know it's like $20 in option contract lingo. But it, they're totally inefficient on that. I cannot believe some yeah. of the numbers that are on there. It's a it's the wild, wild west, uh, uh, to put it lightly. Yeah, and I think – and there's probably data on this, but it feels like it, it exacerbates sort of bubbles. Yeah. Like it drives it prices even higher because then people are trying to catch the bubble. Like yeah. they're trying to make more money on the bubble. And it's mini. It's mini bubbles, kind of like yeah. cannabis, uh, the EV stuff here, SPACs. Like Tilray, like Tilray, uh, Tilray. whatever, two years Tilray, ago. Tilray, R.I.P. Um no, okay. it also I actually saw come across the Twitter wire uh, this morning that there's a SPAC out that's actually only investing in SPACs, SPACception. Oh, that's good. That's Is a good a way idea. To lever the SPAC. We'll lever it up. We'll turn on two points of leverage or whatever they call that. Two okay. keys. <laughs> I don't even know how they call that. All right. What uh, What did you have? Okay. Anyone who ever touched Nikola uh, Motors? Again, tough one there. I mean, you already knew it, but there was more news out today that Trevor Milton didn't even make the original models and drawings himself. He bought them from someone in Croatia. So stocks below 20 now was almost at 80 beforehand. It's just, I see no reason why. By the dip? No, 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 no. Just, they have some revenue. I mean, they lost lost their largest customer. (laughs) Trevor Milton. They what? Their only revenue they had was from him, right? Yeah, I mean, he's more than ten percent of sales. That is a you know they like got to disclose solar that. Solar installation or something. Yeah, I can't believe they didn't even couldn't even get enough revenue, so they had to disclose that he's got thirty six thousand dollars in solar roof tiles from his own company. They didn't, he couldn't even get a million in revenue, so they didn't have to disclose hey, that. That's optionality. <laughs> they could pivot to solar. They can. They have optionality and fraud. That's for sure. All okay. right. I, my other one. I had that Robinhood thing as well, which is just the. Hilarious. I can't even believe. All right. TikTok ad spend though. This is a little serious. So apparently, uh, according to their filings, they're spending upwards of ten to thirty dollars to acquire each of their users when their users have an ARPU, which is that is average revenue per user each year of only five dollars. Is that a red flag for the long-term profitability of their business? Because that no. assumes a long, long, what do they call it? Customer lifetime or lifetime value. You yeah, know I mean? it, it assumes very low churn, mm-hmm. and which I guess could suck if it got banned or something. Yeah. That would obviously hurt churn. But then there's, I mean, it's early in the monetization yeah. life yeah. cycle. Like, that's true. They're probably not, and they know they can ramp it up if they want to. ARP will probably go up higher. Yeah, that's true. But they're still spending a lot, um, and it shows that it's going to take a lot um, to dethrone anyone from Facebook or Instagram. It's pretty sticky, from what I've yeah. seen. It's pretty sticky. Um, it's more like YouTube, though, right? Almost. It's like a cross. Yeah, kinda. I I mean, it's hard to explain. You kind of gotta 
You kind of got to see it. Yeah, I feel old. Um, okay, Fuck, Mary Kill this week. The theme is public companies with an imaginary top line. Um, oh, man. Nicola, number one. Nano X, number two. And Virgin Galactic, number three. Am I getting oh. that wrong? Does Virgin have any revenue? No, they have they like minimal. They have minimal. Very minimal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, those three. Fuck, Mary Kill. I'm killing Nano X because from what I read on that Muddy Waters research report <laughs> – and it's I think a, it probably is a fraud. It's a hot topic because there's a lot of people that – there. I mean there's some investors out on Twitter that we respect that have mm-hmm. taken an investment in it. But it's like – I'm not touching it. No way. Dude, you, there's no margin of safety. Muddy Waters and, has such a good track record too. Yeah. I mean it's – and the problem is I feel like a lot of people write off the short. They're like, yeah. no, they just – you know, they've been wrong before. I'm like, they've been right before. And if they're yeah. right, everything's gone. So uh, yeah, you lose all your money, which cannot happen. It, it feels happen. like you're sort of anchoring to like prior information. I would look, I would take it seriously. Oh, I'm killing, yeah, I'm killing NanoX. I'll actually, I was making fun of Nicola. I actually married Nicola just because it's probably a better business model than Virgin Galactic. I'm not touching any of these three in my actual portfolio, but I'll fuck Virgin Galactic just because if they land something or launch something, the stock will probably 2x. It's That's not investment advice whatsoever, and that's no way to put your money to work. But seriously, like, could you see that if they land something or take someone into space, the stock will pop? Virgin Galactic, if you're right, it's a cool company to be right on. It's like, cool. If they yeah, do it cool. well, it's like what's more fun to invest in than something that's taking people to space? But- and Chamath's very smart. If you're betting on – yeah, I mean that that helps too. If you're betting on commitments, like if you're actually considering the commitments that they show to be a valuable <laughs> yeah. use, they're not. Yeah. Like I would commit to it, mm-hmm. but I probably wouldn't go. So True. I mean maybe. But the amount of – I bet the conversion rate from people that commit to people that actually go is going to be super low. Agreed. Agreed. And then Nicola, I mean, I make fun of them, but if you know, GM gets some management in there, they might the stock might totally crater, but there could be some value in the electric truck market, but no way I'm actually putting money into that. No, definitely not. Okay, anecdotal evidence. I just have one. Okay. Um so I watched Tehran, I, I think if I'm saying that right. Apple TV Plus and Ted Lasso. Mogul. Ted Lasso was okay. Um I thought Tehran was pretty good. I'd only seen the first episode, but I think Apple TV Plus Solid. has some actual merit. I think they're pretty good. They're getting up there. I'm going to watch that whenever I get a password. I'm going to watch that Tom Hanks movie. That was okay. World War II. It's more, it feels more of my alley than yours. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I typically like, but okay. it was okay. Bridge of Spies, underrated. Um, um, but I don't know. Are they going to be in that tier one content provider level? Maybe. I mean, we talked in the interview how they weren't, but they're cheap too like it's a cheap subscription so the yeah. subscription fatigue isn't as daunting with them yeah and they can spend a lot of money although i just think the apple music they gotta win at that for the bundle to make sense yeah and even if apple tv plus wins like that doesn't move the needle for them true that is very true it's just it's a bolt-on or not bolt-on just it's nothing really it's like a tiny screw in this giant machine yeah okay uh what did you have well, we were talking about Stitch Fix earlier. I signed up. I'm going to get some anecdotal evidence because we are – I'm getting a little bullish and I want to get some market knowledge. It's get that gonna, customer value prop first. Yeah, we'll have to write it off, right? It's just like haircuts, 70000 I'm writing yeah. off my $20 business thing expense. on our LLC so we don't make any money. Uh, but yeah, I signed up to get some anecdotal evidence for real. The quiz was pretty easy. 
Um, I'm going to get a fix now. I can't shop yet because apparently they got to put me through the algorithm so I can get direct buy. I'm going to test out direct buy probably and we see what they can mm -hmm. uh, show. But they said that there is a high demand right now. Uh, so I won't get my shipment until in the like October 7th, which I think is a good sign, right? Is it high demand or is it a screwed supply chain? <laughs> they said something about COVID. I don't know. Because... I mean, we read the we read their annual reports. They did have if a they problem. they really had that great of demand, true. You know, we would be we had that call option. No, yeah, the uh, hey, yeah, that worked. But the uh, no, the last one didn't. The the first ones did. But uh, the, that, yeah. the oh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, they had those fulfillment centers that had to get shut down because of the COVID outbreaks in March and maybe later in the spring. I think they're up and running now, but they that's could have some trouble with that still. That's a good way to twist supply constraints. Overwhelming demand. Yeah. That's a nice That's a nice twist. Now you're thinking like Elon. Okay. That's going to do it. Um, if you want to watch this, go to YouTube. We put For all whatever. the shows on there. Yeah. yeah. If you're really inclined to like see our faces, you can go see it on YouTube. Just YouTube Chit Chat Money. Mm -hmm. um, and then twitter chit chat money ccm ryan ccm brett we're on there if you have any recommendations for the show stuff you want us to talk about feel free to reach out um other than that we are not financial advisors anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week